Okay, today's Bible reading is uh, from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 26, uh, which you can find on page 986 of the Black Bibles, um, or you can follow along on the screen. Okay. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was a reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise, I said to myself. This too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. 
Well, thanks so much, Fiona. And I just realised I don't think I introduced myself earlier. My name is Cam Maxwell. I'm uh, the campus pastor here at Trinity Church Tonsley. And just, yeah, I'd love to add my welcome to uh, Joe's and Kelly's from earlier. Um, Really big welcome to those who are joining us, especially for Ice Cream Sunday. Uh, it's great to have you back. If you come over the last couple of weeks to Christmas and carols and come back to hear a bit more about the meaning of life and probably also have some ice cream. Um, as you have picked up from the sermon title uh, and from the part of the Bible we just read, uh, the thing we're coming up against is probably the most important question we can kind of ask uh, right at the end of the year. Um, I don't have much more to say about ice cream, uh, though, to be honest, at this point. Um, what we're really talking about is the question of existence. Like, why are we here? Uh, what is the meaning of life, and how will I, uh, in my own life, find satisfaction? How will I find happiness? What does it take to live a life that really matters? Now, most weeks we do touch on questions like that uh, from week to week here at church, but it seems like the last day of the year is probably the best possible time there is uh, to ask questions like this, uh, to really properly sit down and, and think through things that might actually give us a bit of an existential crisis. On New Year's Eve, uh, we get to take stock of how life is going, uh, and to do that, we really should be trying to be as clear as we can be, how should life be going? What is it all about? What is it supposed to be all about? And how is our life matching up with that? And if we're clear on the big picture, what life is all about, uh, the idea is we can hit 2024 with the details all in, all in place and in good shape. Now, just up front, uh, it will be no, no surprise to anyone, I think, to hear the pastor, uh, the preacher at the front, uh, get to the punchline a bit later saying the meaning of life somehow is all about God. That will be no surprise, I'm sure. Uh, and yet, whether you're a committed Christian or whether you're someone who's thinking through these things for the first time, or whether you're sort of somewhere in between, um, I hope you'll find it really, has, really helpful to wrestle with these questions a bit this morning, uh, helped along by this really quite unique part of the Bible uh, from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was written about uh, 1,000 years before Jesus, uh, so it's nearly 3,000 years old. Uh, it's an ancient source of wisdom, but it really is timeless in the way that it does explore what life is supposed to be about. Uh, you've probably already picked up, as Fiona read, that chapter 2 is... It's pretty bleak. It sounds pretty bleak at first. It kind of does have a bit of a Monday morning vibe all about it. You know, what's the point of work? You just die one day anyway. Uh, crucially, as we'll see, um, Ecclesiastes is much more positive. It's just a bit more nuanced than it may first seem. And the thing I want to say up front is, as bleak as Ecclesiastes may sound, it's actually far, far better than any alternatives uh, on offer. Uh, for instance, if you were to go on YouTube, uh, in the great source of all wisdom, if you go on YouTube and ask the question, what is the meaning of life, uh, I've done this, uh, the most popular videos that come up, uh, for me at least, with my algorithm working uh, for me, uh, they're just really sad. Uh, they're really sad videos. Um, uh, the key difference is that modern wi wisdom on YouTube generally starts with the assumption that human beings are just cosmic accidents. We're just here by chance. And so in the grand scheme of the universe, our lives are utterly insignificant. We are so tiny. Our lifespan is so short, it doesn't really matter. Uh, in the, the timescale of billions of years compared to the galaxy, it doesn't matter one scrap what you do today or tomorrow or for the rest of your life. You're just going to die one day. And so will everyone you love. So what's the point? One day the sun will explode, so, you yeah. know, get on with it. That's basically what those videos are, often have under, underlying them. Um, bleak, right? They're bleak. It seems to me that point, if that's true, if that actually is true, we are cosmic uh, accidents, then you can only conclude, well, there is no meaning. At least they're honest about that, and there's consistency there. And if you're going to be honest about that outlook, actually, the way we live probably should be nihilistic. It should be fatalistic and defeatist. But it's just so hard to live like that, isn't it? Uh, some of you will know people who have uh, dabbled with nihilism and realise it's just so hard to live that way. And so if it's true that we are cosmic accidents, that we're here by chance... 
The only actual alternative that people seem to live by, it seems to me, is to seek ignorance blissfully as much as we can. Uh, Just ignoring the fact that we will get old and we will die. And just try not to think about how tiny we are and how short our lifespan is. Or the fact that nothing we do will ultimately really matter at all. Just try not to think about it. Uh, Try not to think about how catastrophic it is with that framework to come up with a decent moral framework. Just try and enjoy, against all odds, the fact that you exist and get on with it. That, I think, is probably oversimplifying it a little, but as far as I can tell, that's basically uh, the alternative we have to Ecclesiastes. All those videos tend to cover is that we are basically just not here with any purpose or reason, and so the only two options are bleak and despairing, but at least honest about it and consistent with what you believe, or pretend, actually, that our lives really do count and hope we don't have to think about this too much. So my advice is YouTube is probably not the best place to go to seek uh, thoughts on uh, how to get through an existential crisis. Uh, Ecclesiastes, though, uh, this is the spot, I think, to explore this question. In my opinion, it's probably the best spot to start if you are uh, new to Christian things, uh, because I think Ecclesiastes has a thoroughly honest approach uh, to answering this question. It doesn't ignore reality. Uh, It shows a genuine earnestness as it seeks to understand what life is about. It doesn't sort of go straight for easy answers. But more than that, it gives us hope for a life that's not bleak, that's not nihilistic, or ignorant about reality, or even self-centred. The way Ecclesiastes works, you may have noticed, is that the author tells us of the journey that they took in their life as they try to find purpose and meaning. They kind of did it by trial and error. They tried this, they did that, and they tried, was this the thing that's going to satisfy me and give me meaning and purpose? They've done all these things, tried this, tried that. They've done the hard work for us, exploring each of those things and wrote about it so we can learn from their experience. We can take shortcuts and stand on their wisdom. As it turns out, the wisdom of 3,000 years ago and the kind of things being explored there by this person are probably the main directions people in our age go to find meaning and purpose in life as well, or try to at least. And so, quick background on this chapter of Ecclesiastes. Generally, the author is thought to be King Solomon. Uh, He was very famous uh, for being incredibly wise, uh, unbelievable wisdom, uh, but also being incredibly rich, uh, stinking rich. Which means, among other things, he had the opportunity most of us don't have to test these things out to the full. And so the first area he really throws himself into to try and explore is wisdom. He tries to work out, is wisdom the purpose of life? Trying to get as much wisdom as we possibly can. If we're wise, if we know all the answers, we will be satisfied. Um, If you have your Bibles open with me, have a look at chapter 1, verse 16, and I'll uh, get this up on the screen as well. This is just a bit before uh, the the reading we had. He says, I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to understanding wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the winds. He's saying, being wise, knowing all there is to know, that's apparently not the answer. Verse 18, he tells us why. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Now, overall, uh, the Bible and Ecclesiastes is actually very positive about wisdom. Wisdom is a great thing. He's not saying to avoid it. He's just saying it's not the thing. Uh, It's not the thing that will give our lives purpose or satisfaction. Here's another reason for this, and this is what we did cover as well in chapter 2 from verse 15. I said to myself, the fate of the fool, even though I'm wise, basically, the fate of the fool overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. 
His point is that the wisest person and the greatest fool end up exactly the same place, eventually, dead and forgotten. And actually, often, the fool has a far more enjoyable and satisfying life than the wise person. He realises here that wisdom is great. It's wonderful to understand the world, how it works, all those things. But wisdom alone is not enough. It's not enough to be the purpose of our lives. Now, my guess is we already have a sense of this. Uh, I'm guessing I'm already telling you things you already know here because we have access, don't we, to all the wisdom we could possibly want, uh, more than any other generation before us. A few clicks of a button, a few buttons clicked, uh, and we can have the answers to any question uh, we can think of. All the wisdom in the world at our fingertips, and yet uh, we are way less happy, way more anxious, and way more uncertain than we should be if knowing things was the purpose of life. Alongside there, some of the world's greatest thinkers, uh, some of the world's greatest philosophers are very, very sad people. Uh, one example amongst many that comes to mind for me is uh, the most influential and I'd say probably the most brilliant thinkers in the last 150 years is a guy called Friedrich Nietzsche. I don't agree with everything he says at all, but he's a brilliant mind. Now, you may not know of him, but his thinking has shaped the modern world probably more than most of us realise. And in his day, uh, in his day, he could win any argument. Uh, he had a brain like no other, and a grasp on the world around him was just formidable. So he had intelligence, he had learning, and incredible wisdom, but it just didn't count for much, actually. Uh, Nietzsche was a desperately unhappy and unsatisfied man uh, who, who actually firmly believed that our lives don't matter much. And he says this, be on the screen. Everything in the world displeases me. But above all, my displeasure in everything displeases me. That's properly bleak, isn't it? Um, not much fun to invite to your, to your New Year's Eve party if you're thinking of uh, having some great guests to bring some fun. And in fact, the last 11 years of his life were spent in a mental asylum with unbelievable despair and madness. I actually think Nietzsche uh, and many brilliant minds like him would agree with Solomon here. Wisdom, understanding is good, but by itself, it's just not enough. There is something missing. So then, uh, how about the very popular belief that life is really about pleasure? Uh, I reckon if, uh, if Australia had a core value, a core motto, it'd be something like maximise pleasure, minimise pain. That seems to be how we try and live uh, in Australia most of the time. Maximise pleasure, minimise pain. Is that what life is all about? Pleasure. Well, the billions of dollars spent in advertising, I think, is very successful in convincing us this might be the case. But what does Solomon find? Remember, as well, he's the king. Uh, he could enjoy things at a scale that you and I can only dream of. Um, the size of the parties, uh, the absolute indulgence, no one telling you no, no one telling you stop. He could do whatever he wanted. Unbelievably wealthy and powerful. So have a look again at verse 1 from chapter 2. It's going to be on the screen, I think. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried. Cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. It goes on, verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I, had, I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. His point is, he had everything he wanted. All the money, all the parties, all the sex, all the people doing his bidding, everything. The mansions, the chariots, the delights of his heart. Verse 10, uh, verse 10, he said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Like indulgence to the max. But then, the verse, end of verse 11, he says, it was all meaningless, chasing after the winds. Nothing was gained under the sun. 
The point he's making is, oh, believe me, guys, don't bother even trying going down this path. It's never enough, no matter how much you have. None of it helped him. Uh, it didn't make his life any more meaningful. It really was like chasing after the winds. It's a great image, isn't it, chasing after the winds? Uh, it's so futile, but also hard work. Uh, chasing, chasing, never catching. I guess that's where the ice cream idea fits in today, uh, like with Atlas this morning. Like, ice cream's great, uh, but eating a whole tub of it has never made anyone's life actually better. Of course, it's silly for Atlas, we can laugh at Atlas, uh, making ice cream the centre of his life and trying to you know, hold on to it all. Uh, it melts, it's temporary, and you know it's not that good for him. But isn't that true of absolutely everything we buy at the end of the day? Ice cream's just the same as everything else. Uh, of everything we can accumulate, it's basically the same. Especially if we think it will fulfil us, if we think it will satisfy us. It really is like chasing after the winds, or like storing up ice cream in your car. Accumulating wealth or pleasure, it's ultimately futile in satisfying us. Now again, the author's not saying money's bad, he's saying it's actually quite helpful to have money, but if we're seeking money as a meaning of life, we'll forever be chasing the winds, never having enough, never satisfied. And it's not just Solomon teaching this, um, I think we see exactly the same things uh, all around the world. Uh, some of the most uh, wealthy, famous people in our, in our world are tragically sad, I think. Um, they have it all, but are clearly not happy and are not well. I think of Kanye West, uh, someone who has more money, more fame, more sex than pretty much anyone else on the planet. Uh, if, you, if you watch the headlines, incredibly troubled man. All those things have done nothing to bring him satisfaction that lasts or meaning to his life. But perhaps the guy that captures it best for me is a guy called Jim Carrey. I, um, some of you younger people have no idea who I'm talking about. Uh, here's a picture of Jim Carrey. He was the all-conquering comedian in the 90s, early 2000s, making great, um, I thought, great, uh, great comedies, blockbusters. He was on top, uh, top of the world as a comedian, as an actor. Um, Jim Carrey, though, I went on to say, from his own experience, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. So even if we could have, like Solomon or like Jim Carrey, even if we could have everything we possibly dream of, there's still something missing. So then maybe we should look at Solomon's third area he explores, which is work. Uh, that's actually probably Australia's great national pastime. I think uh, Australians work still some of the longest hours in the world. Uh, yeah, and as you might have guessed, uh, Solomon thinks work, a successful career, isn't actually what life is all about. Have, again, uh, have a look again at chapter 2, verse 20. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. For a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave it all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Now, like with wisdom and pleasure, he's not making the case that work is a waste of time. That's not what he says, that's not what he means by meaningless. It's not meaningless to work, but Solomon's trying to find the whole point of life here, and he's saying work is not it. Most of the time, work kind of sucks and it's tiring, but worse than that is even when you're working, while you're working hard, doing a great job, we all know deep down that no matter how good a job you do on a really important thing, we know the next person that can come along and ruin our lifetime of work in a single day. Kind of depressing. And I don't think he's just talking about a career either here. I think it's a bit broader than this. Uh, many people would, of course, agree that you don't find meaning in, a, in life in a nine-to-five office job or something like that. But more people, I think, would say that, yeah, you can find meaning by dedicating our life's toil, our energy, uh, to some great and worthy cause. 
to making a real change in the world, whether it's you know, investing in making a change in environmental concerns, uh, helping people who are in need, even raising our children. These are all great things as we try to leave the world in a better place than we found it. These are all great things, noble things to toil away at, but Solomon would say it's not quite enough to really satisfy. Because again, we know deep down our life's work can evaporate in a moment. Uh, a law, for instance, we might tirelessly advocate for change, for, for good, we might uh, seek legal change. That can always be reversed in the next election. A charity we found could fall apart. A child we sacrificed so much for can grow up to despise us and disown us. So, uh, what Solomon's journey of discovery seems to reveal is that taking something good and placing it in the center of our lives, it, it doesn't seem to work. It actually only ever leads to dissatisfaction. It's the opposite. And what can be worse is that those things we devote our lives to, they can actually end up destroying us because they can't bear the weight of our expectations. They can't deliver ultimate purpose that we're trying to squeeze out of them. A famous Christian author, a great pastor, uh, Tim Keller, puts it this way. The human heart takes good things, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them, he means uh, make them like God's. Our hearts deify them as the centre of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfilment if we attain them. Uh, Tim Keller and Solomon uh, both go on to say it never really works out in the long run when we do that. Those pursuits can't live up to our expectations to give our life meaning or lasting satisfaction. So this is the main part of Solomon's argument, and all of us probably do well, I think, uh, to check we're not putting too much weight on those sorts of things in our lives. Uh, it's good to reflect on, as we sort of hit the end of the year, uh, have we made those things ultimate things? Have we been a bit like Atlas with his ice cream? Um, and if so, would it be wise to make some changes as we hit 2024 to reprioritize, reshift what we're clinging onto dearly? Now, that's all good and well, but what then do we build our lives around? The conclusion Solomon gets to, it's, it's actually kind of subtle here in chapter 2 because he's not saying there is no meaning, it's all a waste of time. In fact, his conclusion says something much more profound than that. In chapter 2 from verse 24, he says this. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Solomon recognised that food and drink and work and family and all those good things, all those good things, they're created for us to enjoy. And here's the key. There is a creator who made us, who made us to enjoy those things. See, good things can only be fully enjoyed and bring full satisfaction if we are in relationship with God who gives them. It's a bit like, well, think about Christmas lunch. Uh, Christmas lunch with family. Uh, for most of us, the Christmas meal itself, the food on the table, is probably the best array of food you'll see all year. Um, I enjoy even the thought of Christmas lunch. But we're not going to enjoy that food properly, are we? Uh, perhaps at all, if we have no relationship or have terrible relationships with everyone else at that meal, or if we go and eat alone in our room. Delicious food and drink isn't the same as doing it all by yourself, is it? So I'm just saying it's the same thing with us and God. The idea is God is responsible for giving us everything. And so often we happily take the good things God gives us, like money or family or roast lamb. But if we don't enjoy those things with God, in relationship with Him, we don't really get to enjoy them properly. 
we miss out, actually, and find them to be ultimately unsatisfying. Because it turns out God created us to have him at the centre of our lives. Left our own device, we don't put God at the centre, do we? And so we do find satisfaction very elusive. We might seek peace, we might seek fulfilment in all the things God has made, but without God, we find it's like chasing after the wind. So, if it's true we're going to find our purpose in life and finding satisfaction in relationship with God, then the thing we need to have is a healthy relationship with God, don't we? Ecclesiastes itself only gives a few hints about how a relationship with God works, but it's something the Bible explains in great detail and something we talk about here week to week quite a lot. For today, though, especially for those who are perhaps exploring these things for the first time and wanting to find out more about Jesus, um, the thing to say here is that, yes, Jesus does absolutely hold the keys to the meaning of life. Uh, It's through Jesus and only through Jesus that we get to have a relationship with God. Jesus' death on the cross is the price of fixing the relationship with God that we broke. And his resurrection opens the door for us, actually. Uh, It makes it possible for us to have life with him, eternal life. Don't take it just from me, though. Uh, Jesus himself tells us that he came to give life and to give life to the full. Not sort of a half-paced life or an okay life, to give life to the full. And if you aren't sure what that might mean for you, uh, can I encourage you to see if Jesus is right about that? Why don't you explore it? Check him out if he's right. It's, of course, the biggest, problem, uh, biggest promise he can make to give you life to the full. So why not explore it in full? In 2024, uh, perhaps uh, join us, or, or a church close to you if you're visiting from afar, join us. Um, even if you're a bit sceptical still of this whole God thing, come along to church as often as you can for, let's say, three months. Uh, join us up until Easter. Come on, week in, week out, hear more and more about Jesus and what life with him means. Just as importantly, perhaps, is get to know those around you. Uh, Is life with Jesus for them actually good? Does it bring satisfaction? Is it different to others you know who don't follow Jesus? Perhaps as well, read the rest of Ecclesiastes. It's a great read. For everyone here who are followers of Jesus already, uh, as we all know, uh, any relationship does need investment. It does need time. So can I encourage us, as we hit 2024, uh, to do so with prayer and intention to grow and build and invest in our relationship uh, with our Creator. Perhaps spend some time reflecting, uh, if there's some downtime for you, perhaps reflect on if there are other things crowding out that relationship. Uh, One way I want to be doing this uh, as I hit 2024 is to work on thankfulness, um, enjoying things with God. Uh, That is, uh, developing that conscious thankfulness that all I am enjoying is really from God's hands. An example of that, I suppose, is um, sometimes we just say grace as a family, power through because we all want to eat, especially the kids. Um, It's a mechanical thing often. But I actually want to work much harder on cultivating genuine thankfulness, uh, noticing God's hands and giving us good things day in, day out, not just with food, but with all things. So as I finish, uh, perhaps let's pray, asking God to help us find that purpose, to find that satisfaction in living life uh, from his hand. Uh, Would you join me as I pray? Well, God, we do thank you so much for uh, the amazing world you've made and for giving each one of us life and breath and existence. Please help us uh, each grow in our understanding of how to live with you as our God in a healthy relationship with you. Help us to really enjoy all the good things you give with great thankfulness and delighted to know you and to serve you as we live. This time of year, please help us reflect really well on our lives And as we come to start another, please help us uh, see where we need to make some changes, uh, see where we can invest more time and energy to build that relationship with you. Um, So thankful that you've reached out to us in Jesus.
Please give us great insight how we can best live with Jesus as our Lord, as our King in this year ahead, we pray. Amen.